Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. Welcome to Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. This week on the Nerdcast, we are going to talk about uh, the group of frontrunners that is coalescing at the front of the Democratic primary, particularly a couple of them on the the left side of the party, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. We're going to check in on the 2020 race coming up in our first segment. Plus, what would you ask Robert Mueller if you got the chance? We're going to talk to a few of Politico's expert Muellerologists about exactly how they answered that question uh, in advance of his congressional testimony next week. As always, we're taping this on a Thursday. Today, that's July 11th, so it's all up to date as of then. Okay, let's get started. I want to welcome our guests for our first segment this week. They're both on the line from the Netroots Conference in Philadelphia, two of our campaign trail reporters, national political reporter Holly Otterbein. Hello, Holly. Hi, how are you? Good, good, good. Thank you for joining us. And we have national political reporter Alex Thompson. Alex, how you been? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Good, good. Well, thank you both for for taking time out of uh, your busy reporting schedules uh, at the Netroots Conference in, in Philly to to join us. So, Holly, just to to start us off, uh, for for someone maybe not familiar with this gathering, uh, w- what exactly is Netroots, and 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 why why are you guys there? Why is this an important place, you know, for for a reporter covering the uh, 2020 Democratic primary to be? So it's basically the biggest annual conference of the year of progressive activists. It's been going on for many years. Um, the name is in reference to the net roots, the, the grassroots um, who, who organize on the web. And so um, it's very important for the 2020 presidential election because there is going to be a forum here of presidential candidates. Um, but it's also a gathering of a lot of the presidential aides and, and a lot of the um, conferences this week are going to be about 2020. Um, so I've already run into some Bernie Sanders aides. Um, there's a uh, there's a car outside promoting Medicare for all. Um, I saw some people with Warren T-shirts. Um, so it's it's you know a gathering of progressive activists, and obviously for everyone, um, including them, 2020 is you know um, on their minds. Yeah, absolutely. Alex, you know, is everyone getting along at this at this big gathering? Obviously, there's there's some some big rivalries brewing uh, with regard to the presidential race. There are a lot of people who are working hard to attract the the support of of folks like those who would be at a a Netroots conference. Uh, what's the what's the kind of the the mood there among maybe the the rival campaign? Uh, groups and, and activists. The main attitude that I hear more often than all is that uh, everyone seems to not like Joe Biden. <laughs> At bottom, I think uh, everyone here is united sort of in their attack of the so-called uh, establishment Democratic Party. That, that makes sense. I mean, that, that's that's a big part of the reason why why Netroots existed in the first place, right? It, 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 it was people who were kind of un, unhappy with status quo, not just when when Republicans held Congress in the White House, but with status quo within the, their own party, and we're trying to kind of push it from the outside, and the internet was a, a, a good tool to to do that. Yeah, I mean that that's, that's exactly right, and they've kind of kept that 
tradition alive. And, you know, it's interesting, you go back to the early Netroots, it was a lot about the war, um, the Iraq war. And now, you know, you go to Netroots and a lot of it is about identity and questions of race and social justice. And um, that seems to be where a lot of the left is, is focusing its energies, especially in the Trump era, where uh, race, questions of race and identity are at the forefront. I want to I, I want to wrap up some of the big developments in the 2020 primary that, that have happened lately. Holly, I, I, I want to bring you in. Talk, talk about Bernie Sanders a little bit. You know, we've gotten a fundraising announcement from him recently, $18 million in the second quarter, no small change uh, at all. But you, you've written recently about uh, some kind of worries emerging around, around the edges of, of the, the Sanders world about may, maybe not even necessarily about the fundraising, although I think maybe some people would have expected more from his grassroots machine about, but just like the, what it means, what it shows about the direction of his campaign going right now, it didn't grow at all from the first quarter, nor has his polling grown, uh, you know, nor have there been kind of other uh, indicators that he's really expanding beyond uh, beyond kind of the base of people he started with. And, and that's starting to generate a little bit more conversation, it seems like. Yeah. Um, you know, his fundraising numbers are impressive. $18 million is a lot of money and his aides will be quick to point out that, you know, he's gotten 2 million individual contributions so far this year. Um, but, you know, he brought in less money than Joe Biden did, than Elizabeth Warren did, and then even Pete Buttigieg did, who of course surprised everyone um, by raising the most money of the field. In addition to that, he has um, sagged in some polls. Uh, there have been polls where, you know, Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris have leapfrogged over him. And, you know, he is still ahead in, in some other polls, but it, but it clearly kind of shows that he is struggling um, to grow his base and to, you know, retain the momentum that he really needs um, in order to win the nomination. He kind of has, you know, Warren in particular nipping at his heels, um, you know, for the left wing of the party. And this has caused some concern even among his supporters. Um, I talked to some of his backers uh, recently and, and some of them said, you know, we, we love Bernie. We love that he's very consistent in his messaging, but, you know, maybe he should mix up his stump speech a little bit, which is very similar to, you know, the same speech that he gave in 2016. His aides have pushed him to do things like bring his personal story more into his speeches. And while he's done that a few times on the trail in 2020, um, and, and probably more than he did in 2016, it's still really an infrequent thing. And that, of course, is very common. Um, Elizabeth Warren brings in her personal story of, of growing up in poverty in Oklahoma, and that's really connected with people. Kamala Harris, obviously, um, during the debates, talked about her very personal story um, of being bust when she was a child and how that bene benefited her. And I think that, um, you know, some of some of his aides, some of his supporters think, you know, he really needs to do that as well to connect with people and more generally just find a way to differentiate himself in this field where, you know, these ideas that he had that were, um, you know, seen as pretty radical in 2016, like Medicare for all or, or free college tuition are, are now being adopted by, you know, a lot of other people in the field um, and, you know, here at here at Netroots, you know, you just there's a lot of support for all of these progressive ideas that you know maybe didn't have quite as much support um, a few years ago, or or were just not as mainstream in the party. So I think that's that's something that he's struggling with, and um, he's going to have to deal with in order to to move forward. And Alex uh, Holly brought up Warren a, a few times in talking about 
Sanders, and, and it's really hard to to separate anything that happens to one of those candidates from the other in this race so far because it just it, it they, they've got so many similarities between them. But I, I think you know one of the things we've been talking for a while about how Warren has kind of been creeping up in into the 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 first tier towards Sanders for for months now in polling, and then we got a real clear indication of of how much progress she's made last week when she announced her fundraising numbers, right, that you were reporting on. And it was uh, ni- $19 million, uh, a little bit more than than Sanders. And um, you wrote a little bit about both how, I mean, obviously this shows momentum, but how it also validates some some kind of important wagers that 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 she had she had made about the campaign earlier uh, that now seem to be paying off. Yeah, I mean, there was a open question about whether Warren could replicate a small, taller, online donations-based fundraising system that could compete with not just uh, Sanders, who had the advantage of running last time and and had really developed uh, an incredible fundraising machine, but also the candidates that were willing to go to fundraisers. You know, I think uh, a lot of strategists in D.C. thought that she was leaving a lot of money on the table and that it was, uh, in some ways, political malpractice. And the uh, huge open question surrounding her candidacy was... Can she create, um, you know, a sustainable fundraising base online? And the answer that we got in the second quarter was a resounding yes. And this also accompanies, uh, you know, you're talking about her relationship with Sanders. You know, Warren has been pushing uh, to become sort of a progressive alternative to to Sanders and to Sanders voters. Now, they have different constituencies to an extent, but uh, it has been interesting to watch her try to get to the the left of Bernie on some issues when she first came out for student loan forgiveness. Now, Bernie's come out and done a bigger plan of student loan forgiveness, but um, she has been, you know, on issue after issue trying to sort of hug Bernie or, or get close to him. Uh, in the debate, she's come up with a new answer on Medicare for all after some criticism from progressives where she just simply says, I'm with Bernie. And so she's been creeping up on him in the polls. She's been creeping up with him in fundraising. And now she has uh, creeped up with him sort of on, on some of these issues too. And um, I think there's an open question of whether or not there can they can both stay in the race past the few first the first few contests, or if there's just too much overlap. That's a that's a really interesting question, and I what the the point you just made about their constituencies being slightly different is is interesting, and I think a, a little counterconventional. I mean, you you guys have dug deep into, and you're examining this question all day. But for for people watching from the outside who might think it's like, oh, these are these are both some kind of like you know new new left. Senators uh, uh, kind of pursuing like similar policy ideas, probably pursuing some of the same voters. But can, can you can you and and Holly tell us a little bit more about exactly what the differences are here in in the the, the groups of supporters that Warren and Sanders are putting together? The the first thing I'll just say is if you go, the easiest way is just go to their rallies, and you can just see a different sort of a voter comes out. Um, Warren's is a little bit more female, a little bit older, a little bit more college educated. And Sanders is usually, uh, you know, is a little bit younger, a little bit more male. Um, they're more, you know, some, some more working class, uh, people. And I think it's a, a reminder that despite the DC conversation of, well, they're similar ideologically, so their voters must be similar ideolog- ideologically, that voters aren't always as ideological as punditry frames them. 
Yeah, that's that is definitely true. Big lesson from from the last election, among among many others that we learned. Holly, what's what's your what's your take on this question? It is super interesting. It does run counter to conventional wisdom, and it sort of leaves open the question. You know, when people talk about things like the left wing lane, the progressive lane that Bernie and Warren are in, is is that the right way to look at the race? Um, another interesting tidbit is that. Um, when you ask voters who their second choice is, Biden voters uh, say Sanders and Sanders voters say Biden. And, and, and now a similar thing is going on with uh, Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren's uh, supporters. They say each other is their second choice. So, um, you know, the lanes may not be ideological. They may be, um, maybe it's about um, gender, maybe it's about um, college education, you know, maybe it's about some of these other other factors for people. It's a really good point. And, you know, one thing that I, I just add that we've seen in some of the, the morning consult polling that, that Politico uh, gets access to uh, is that there, there seems to be a, a breakdown along the lines of how much attention people are paying to politics, where Warren does uh, better among folks who, who say they're paying a lot of attention. Bernie Sanders does a lot better among people who say they're paying a lot less attention to politics, which is interesting. And, and again, it, there's this conventional wisdom that's built up about Sanders supporters that they're like the the hardcore activists who are, you know, trying to elect democratic socialists to like the neighborhood watch committee and, and like everything up and down the ballot. But there's also the, this element of his support that we know from 2016 that was like a little bit more casual. And, and I think people have forgotten about that a lot, but it's interesting to see that still cropping up in the polling. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, I've heard a few different theories for why that may be. Um, you know, one is perhaps Sanders supporters are, you know, more certain that he is the person that they want to vote for. And so they're paying less attention to the 2020 election. Um, another theory is that they tend to be more, maybe they tend to be more disengaged voters, voters who, you know, are distrustful of politicians, maybe even people who don't typically turn out to vote um, and that that may explain it. Um, you know, another theory is that it could be a weakness for Sanders because, um, you know, maybe they are less likely to vote. Will they actually turn out? And also, if they do pay, start paying closer attention to the race, will they, you know, switch their vote to someone like Warren? Mm. Those are all really fascinating questions. Guys, thank you so much for stepping out of, of Netroots to, to talk about this, this really fascinating dynamic in the race right now. Holly, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And Alex, thank you for being here as well. Yep, thanks, man. Okay, next up, we are going to talk about a big day coming up on Capitol Hill for Robert S. Mueller III. That's next Wednesday. He's going to be testifying before the House Intelligence and Judiciary Committees. And to preview that extravaganza, we've got two of our Muellerologists here to help us understand exactly what to expect uh, from the, the, I guess, now former special counsel. Uh, so uh, we've got a first-time guest, Natasha Bertrand, uh, Politico's national security correspondent. Hey, thanks so much for being here, Natasha. Thank you for having me. Uh, and a uh, longtime uh, friend of the Nerdcast, Josh Gerstein, Politico uh, legal affairs and analyst, reporter, et cetera, et cetera. Josh. Hey, Scott. Thank you so much Natasha. for being here. Uh, okay, so so first, some context I, I think is necessary here. Why why is Robert Mueller testifying before Congress? He came out publicly, he made his first public appearance in I guess years a few weeks ago, right? And and, and said something along the lines of I, I have nothing more to say. Like please just read the report. So so what Natasha? What's what's the deal? Yeah, well, I think that this is really something that Democrats wanted because. The report itself is 
something that not even most members of Congress have read, right? So the value in Mueller testifying in their minds is that he will sit down in a highly, highly publicized televised hearing and while not necessarily giving new information because he's already said that he's going to stay very much within the four corners of the report, he can at least read from the report, right? He can at least reiterate some of his findings and perhaps that might move the needle a bit um, on certain issues and, and maybe even lead to impeachment proceedings, depending on how the pendulum swings of public opinion. That was an interesting side effect of the the previous public statement he had made uh, when uh, wrapping up his work, that he 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 repeated he he was repeating quotes and words from the report that 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 people were treating as as new like bombshell information which was kind of a remarkable thing to watch right i mean th- there were many things that he said that were in the report that people said well this is breaking news some of that is just reporters needing to find a lead out of like somebody's when a very prominent figure who's remained silent for so long uh, comes out and speaks. But um, I think the impact of his appearance both at that press conference and in this testimony um, is different depending on what audience you're talking about. So like Natasha was saying, there's no question that that press conference and uh, even at this upcoming testimony, it may fuel the calls for impeachment. Uh, it, It does seem like every time he appears, every time this issue comes to the forefront, we have um, a handful more Democrats come out and say that they should officially uh, begin impeachment proceedings. What what I have some doubts about, though, is whether his appearance is going to lead to the kind of groundswell from the grassroots that some Democrats seem to think um, that if only everybody read the report or had it read to them, whether by Robert Mueller or Robert De Niro, um, that somehow <laughs> that if we could only get it in front of people's faces, their outrage would build and uh, impeachment would become not just a Washington, D.C. Um, insider kind of uh, decision, but that there would be this you know vast movement in the country to have Trump impeached. And I remain a skeptic on that. Uh, front. Uh, I think that this will help get the issue out there. You'll have pictures and video of Mueller um, repeating some of the damaging things about Trump in the report. Some of that may make its way into campaign ads and things like that. But I'm a little doubtful that it's going to dramatically um, move the needle in middle America or that maybe they'll even tune in. It's a reasonable point. So that's that's what Democrats are hoping to get out of it. They're they're obviously – they run the House, right? So they're the ones who are causing this to happen – Natasha, what are Republicans hoping to do uh, at at these hearings? They're hoping to discredit the entire Russia investigation. I mean, we we kind of already have a sense based on our reporting of what they're going to ask. They're going to accuse Mueller and his team of having biases against the president and the White House. They're going to ask him when he determined or when he was when he found out or discovered that he was not able to. Con- to prove conclusively that a conspiracy occurred between the Trump campaign and Russia and whether he held that until after the midterms in order to have less of an impact perhaps on the election. And and their real goal here is just to essentially try to undermine him um, in public. Whether or not that works is another question because Mueller, you know, can just kind of push back and say, I picked the most qualified people for the investigation. It was a very, very fast probe because I had so many competent people on my team. And with regard to the conspiracy question, there was a lot of obstruction of justice. There was, you know, a lot of the use of encrypted apps. And, you know, there were a lot of loose ends that weren't able to be tied up until after the midterms, until really when he ended. So 
I don't necessarily think this is going to backfire on Democrats, especially because Mueller is such a steady kind of stoic figure and he knows his investigation and the report like the back of his hand. But they are kind of chomping at the bit for their chance to grill him in public. You guys worked uh, with, with a few colleagues on a really fascinating uh, story that's out today. It's a, it, the headline is, here are 11 questions we'd ask Robert Mueller. And you guys got together and you think, you know, you've been following this investigation for, for years now and uh, got together and thought about, okay, knowing that Mueller has said that he's really, he doesn't want to stray outside, I think you said, the, the four corners of the report uh, all that much. What could... Uh, members of Congress ask him in order to to elicit new information, interesting information uh, that that we get from this. And uh, first of all, I th- I think I I just like in reading through this, your giddy anticipation for this this moment and, and like seeing Mueller, you know, p- potentially, you know, out- outlining his thoughts a little bit more really really comes through in in the reading of it. But could could you guys take us through uh, a few of these and what you think really could uh, come out of this that would be new new and different and and unusual and interesting? Um, I think it's going to be really hard to get Mueller to lay out like new facts that aren't um, in the report. So I think a lot of the maneuvering is going to be around um, trying to get Mueller to say other things that may sound damaging uh, to Trump, uh, things about the impact of that Russian interference had in the election, things about, um, you know, for example, you know, a lot of the report is devoted to technicalities, if you will, about why many of these alleged acts of uh, obstruction or alleged acts of uh, collusion uh, didn't amount to crimes that the the Justice Department would prosecute. But many of these are very, very close calls. And so I think you're going to see Democrats uh, try to draw Mueller out on those issues and then uh, try to ask him uh, what changes he would recommend so that the U.S. could be more protected um, from these kinds of efforts to interfere um, in elections in the future. I also think, as Natasha was saying earlier, you'll see this question of whether he can really sit on his hands when Republicans um, come after him uh, over some of these issues like his hiring of staff. I mean, he he can say, I don't want to answer this question because it's in the report or I don't want to go beyond the report. But when somebody says that um, your immediate deputies were dishonest or politically biased, to sort of say, I can't comment on that may not seem like a fulfilling answer because, you know, I think anybody would feel an impulse to defend their Colleagues, and so um, that's one of the things that I'll be looking for. That's interesting, well. and he and he's been pretty sharp in the past with uh, at, during congressional testimony with with members who he felt were being dishonest or, or shading shading the facts in a in a dishonest way. Yeah, so there could be fireworks along those lines, and the interesting thing there will be like, does he directly engage questions that are framed as President Trump says your um, investigation was made up of eighteen angry Democrats? How do you? you know, respond to that. Mm. Is he willing or interested in questions that will lead to him being depicted as having gone toe to toe with the president? Or is he going to feel that that drags him and his image into the mud in a way that he tries to prevent? Mm. Natasha, what are you looking for? Yeah, I I think that it's going to be difficult to get him to answer hypothetical questions. So questions like, you know, the, the burning one, which is if the president weren't the president, would you have indicted him? Um, I, I think that he will kind of skirt around that question and answer it as he did in the report. But, you know, maybe questions that are a little more open-ended, like 
why did you end the investigation when you did? That's a big one that I've had. So the timing of it. Why did he end it before the Roger Stone trial? Why did he end it before Rick Gates, Paul Manafort's deputy, finished his cooperation with the government? I mean, it just it seemed like a very abrupt um, ending to a two-year investigation, which was timed very soon after he spoke to the attorney general about the fact that he was not going to be charging um, or not going to be accusing the president um, formally of obstructing justice. So I also wonder, speaking of Barr, whether or not he's going to perhaps be goaded into saying that he did not agree with how Barr characterized his report. So when Barr came out and gave that, you know, press conference and characterized the findings in the report. Mueller apparently sent a letter um, to Barr really disagreeing with how he went about doing that. So I wonder if Democrats are going to kind of try to pit Barr against Mueller and whether Mueller will take the bait in any way. And the two men are interesting because they do have a social relationship and some kind of professional relationship going back several decades. So how they navigate that and to what extent they're willing to uh, sharply differ with each other in public has been interesting so far during Barr's Hill testimony and his press conferences and just be, you know, Mueller's repartee to that and and how much of that disagreement he's willing to put on display will be fascinating to watch. That is interesting. What is Mueller doing at, at this point? Is he kind of, you know, on vacation essentially or do we know? I think know? he's gone back to the law firm where he was at before, which is Wilmer, Wilmer Hale uh, in Washington and he's been preparing for this. Uh, people are assuming he'll try to go back to the kind of work that he was doing before, which is sort of corporate investigations and you know uh, advice to big com- big companies on how to handle trouble uh, that they're in, uh, conducting you know um, blue ribbon uh, inquiries uh, for for places that get into some sort of legal difficulty. So that's what we think he's been up to. But um, you know he's also probably realistically semi-retired at this point. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, the uh, the testimony is going to be on July seventeenth. That's uh, next Wednesday. Uh, you've given us a lot to to think about as we as as we await. Uh, Natasha, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. And Josh, thank you as well. Oh, happy to be here. And as always, a big thank you to you for tuning in. Our producer this week is Jenny Ahmed. Dave Shaw is our executive producer. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you're a fan of the Nerdcast and you'd like to read these very credits, please let us know. Send an email to nerdcast at politico.com. And remember, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Once again, thank you so much for tuning in. We'll talk again next week.